Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Friday, November 11th, 2022. So the top story at Antiwar.com today, General Mark Milley sees an opportunity for peace. So this is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. He's the highest ranking uh, U.S. military officer. So he said this on Wednesday during a speech, but I didn't see... uh, it didn't really come out until Thursday, but he said uh, that he sees an opportunity for negotiations between Russia and Ukraine now that Moscow has announced its retreat from Kherson and said that the two sides should seize the moment. He said, quote, when there's an opportunity to negotiate, when peace can be achieved, seize it, seize the moment, end quote. And he said this at the Economic Club of New York. So Milley thinks that Russia is digging in for the winter and that the battle lines won't change much over the next few months. He said lessons should be learned from World War I when European powers' refusal to negotiate led to millions more casualties in trench warfare. Milley said that Russia may be using the withdrawal to rest its troops for a future spring offensive, but he believes, quote, there's also an opportunity here, a window of opportunity for negotiation, end quote. Uh, So he said that the two sides need to realize that victory might not be achievable through military means. Uh, He said that if a diplomatic solution is not reached, you know, the U.S. would continue arming Ukraine and the U.S. and NATO have very big plans to support Ukraine and, and send weapons to Ukraine for years and years to come and train Ukrainians. I mean, they got big plans. But Milley, uh, he seems to be sticking to this because he reiterated this view uh, that negotiations are possible in an interview with CNBC. This was on Thursday. He said, quote, now what the future holds is not known with any degree of certainty, but we think that there are some possibilities here for some diplomatic solutions, end quote. So his comments came as I went over yesterday. There was an NBC News report that said some U.S. And Western officials believe that this winter will bring an opportunity for peace talks. But there does seem to be a divide, as the New York Times reported on Thursday, that Milley is at odds with other high-level U.S. officials over his stance that negotiations are possible. So the New York Times report said that President Biden's advisors have concluded that the moment is not ripe for peace talks and that the U.S. should not be pressuring Ukraine to negotiate. So that's kind of what their stance has been all along throughout this whole war. And the White House has been careful to maintain that it's not nudging Ukraine to the negotiating table with Biden repeating this week, uh, you know, this line that they keep saying nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine or something like that. Uh, But we do uh, know that Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, went to Kiev last week and he reportedly asked Zelensky to soften his stance on negotiations And then then Zelensky went ahead and dropped the condition. So he initially, his position was no talks with Russia as long as Putin is president. And it seems like he's dropped that condition, although he's maintained some pretty serious demands that are really non-starters for talks with Russia, it seems like. But these comments from Milley and even this, what Sullivan did, I mean, this is a very significant shift in the U.S.'s stance on negotiations. Up to this point, the Biden administration has discouraged diplomacy even when a deal was in reach after Ukraine and Russia held in-person peace talks in Istanbul at the end of March. So I've gone over this so much, but it's important to always rehash. 
uh, because according to uh, this was Fiona Hill writing in Foreign Affairs uh, that there was a tentative deal reached, according to U.S. former U.S. officials that she spoke with, and under this deal, you know, Russia would have pulled back to its pre-invasion lines. Um, but Boris Johnson went over to Kiev, told them not to negotiate, and according to Ukrainian media, that was a one factor in why uh, negotiations didn't go any further. And then after those talks fell apart, that's when we saw Lloyd Austin say that the U.S.'s goal in Ukraine is to weaken Russia, and then Congress passed that $40 billion Ukraine aid package. So it looks like they wanted the war to continue after that. Now you have Milley calling for diplomacy. And, I mean, you think if if they made a deal back then, Ukraine uh, wouldn't have lost all the territory it has. You know, you could keep going back. You go back before the war with the uh, Minsk uh, Accords. But uh, right now, if, if they do make some kind of deal, I mean, what was this all for? Like, I mean, I think diplomacy is, is exactly what sh- should be happening right now. And it does, there are indications that there, there's been secret negotiations. Sullivan has apparently, he's been speaking with his Russian counterpart. Um, but I mean... And and also what kind of deal could be reached? Could the U.S., even Millie, just want like kind of a pause in fighting over the winter as they arm Ukraine more and pass more aid? Uh, just to pause it for now and then keep the fight going in the future. Or maybe he's actually realizing um, that they shouldn't be uh, risking, you know, nuclear war with Russia like they, they have been. And that, uh, you know, I know Millie, at least personally, he, he he thinks the big priority is China. So I'm sure that there are some people in the administration that thinks, you know, they can't really afford all this spending on Ukraine when they want to encircle China. Um, or maybe they just put all their orders in. They got all their orders in for Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, and they could take a little break for now. Uh, who knows? But it's definitely significant. It's a big story, and it was buried by the mainstream media. Uh, AP and the New York Times were the two big write-ups about Milley's speech. The headline was about his estimates of casualties and the fact that he said negotiations were possible were buried uh, in, in the story. So there wasn't many the headlines that said that. Where I did see a headline that said Millie thinks peace talks are possible was TASS, the Russian news agency. So Russia's paying attention to what he's saying. All right, the next one here, uh, Ukraine expects Russian withdrawal from Kherson to take at least one week. So this is Ukraine's defense minister on Thursday, said that Russia will... It, need at least a week to withdraw from the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson and remove all of its forces from the west bank of the Dnieper River. This is Ukrainian Defense Minister Oleski Reznikov. So if you look, if you're watching the video, you can see this map here from South Front. And if people want to check out the battle lines, they put out maps every day. They're a really good source. Um, and all these little circles here are villages that Ukraine has taken over uh, on Thursday. So this is the area to the west of the river, and Russia is going to pull out of there. Ukraine's saying they need at least a week, and it includes the city of Kherson. Um, so where was I here? So Reznikov, uh, he's saying he expects fighting that will slow down in the winter as well, like Milly does. He said, quote, the winter will slow down every activity on the battlefield for all sides. It's beneficial for all sides. You will have rest. We will use this time with a maximum result for our armed forces for regrouping, for refreshing, and for rotation, and we will pre- prepare them well, end quote. Uh, 
Um, so again, I just mentioned in this article what Millie said, and also uh, that La Repubblica report, Italian newspaper, said this week that the U.S. and NATO think peace talks could be possible if Ukraine retakes Kherson. So there's a lot of signs that some talks might be happening or or, or might happen. Uh, but while there is a slowdown, there may be a slowdown in fighting, Russia could also be preparing for a major offensive as it has been reinforcing its positions, other positions outside of Kherson after mobilizing the 300,000 fresh troops. But Russia has also maintained that it's open to negotiations. But this retreat, it's very significant. I mean, it's the most significant of the war, I, I think, because it came after Russia annexes territory. You know, PR-wise, this is not... It's not good for Russia. You know, maybe it was strategically sound to get those troops out of there behind the river where they could defend better. But just it just looks really bad for them to say, declare this area Russia and then abandon it as well as the city. Uh, but there were signs that they were going to pull out for a while because they were they were evacuating civilians from that area for a while. And officials in the region, Russian installed officials in Kherson, were saying, at least one of them said about a week ago, that they might pull troops out too from this area. Um, and one thing just about the Millie thing, you know, it's so pathetic that the progressives retracted that letter that they sent to President Biden that very mildly called for diplomacy. Because then just a few weeks later, the commander of the U.S. military is saying the same thing. In fact, he's actually, get, you know, saying it more strongly than they did. There, theirs was a very timid call for diplomacy. Um, anyway, the the next one here. So again, you know, the U.S. still has big plans to be arming Ukraine. This is from Kyle Anzalone and Will Porter at the Libertarian Institute. The White House will send Ukraine Avenger surface-to-air missiles. So the Pentagon has announced that it will send Avenger air defense systems and a number of other weapons to Ukraine bringing security assistance to Kiev to over 1 billion in just the last month. So this is the weapons package that they've they've announced in the past month. So the Pentagon said on Thursday that Biden approved a new $400 million weapons transfer to Ukraine. The White House claims it can directly send arms from American stockpiles to foreign governments under this authority known as the Presidential Drawdown Authority. So that's how they've been sending most of the weapons. And this package includes four of these Avenger air defense systems, um, self-propelled platforms capable of firing Stinger surface-to-air missiles. Boeing assembles the Avenger vehicle, while Raytheon, the former employer of Lloyd Austin, manufactures its munitions. Uh, the round, it also includes Hawk missiles for and, and ammunition for the HIMARS rocket systems, artillery rounds, stuff like that. So, you know, they're still doling out all this weapons and stuff. Um, all right, the next one here, this is uh, an AFP article from a few days ago that I think we actually missed. Um, and this was, there are these major protests in Italy. Thousands march in Italy for peace in Ukraine. Tens of thousands of Italians marched through Rome on Saturday, calling for peace in Ukraine and urging Italy to stop sending weapons uh, to Ukraine. So tens of thousands, that's that's a good sign, I think, um, because Italy has has been supporting the the war and the new uh, prime minister. She said, uh, Maloney, that they're going to keep supporting the war. But there's actually some signs here that um, 
that might not be the case. Uh, so hopefully, you know, this pressure keeps up on the Italian government. I know Draghi, the former, the last prime minister, he was real gung ho. He said, we can't negotiate with Putin. And then he, he came under some domestic pressure and softened his stance a bit and started speaking with Putin. Um, so I think domestically, there are a lot of people in Italy that don't want to be involved. Okay, so the next one, uh, Israel, Israeli F-35 fighter jets escort U.S. bombers in show of force aimed at Iran. So the U.S. deployed two B-52 bombers to the Middle East on Thursday that were escorted through Israeli airspace by Israeli F-35s in the latest show of force aimed at Iran. According to the Times of Israel, the bombers were on their way back from the Persian Gulf when they met with the Israeli jets. U.S. Central Command, which oversees military operations in the Middle East, said in a press release that it conducted a bomber task force mission in the region with two B-52s. It said that the bombers flew from a base in Louisiana and that it integrated with 13 partner nation air forces. So they didn't say what other countries they flew with, but generally when they're flying in the region, uh, they meet up with Saudi and Emirati, uh, other Arab nations, fighter jets fly with them along the way. Uh, but U.S. bomber flights in the region are common when tensions are high between Washington and Tehran. This provocation comes as negotiations between the U.S. and Iran to revive the nuclear deal have been stalled for months. The Biden administration has been increasing sanctions on Iran and voicing support for protesters inside the country. So tensions are really high. And this happens a lot. I think the last time I did it was in September. I remember at the end of the Trump administration, when tensions were really high, it seemed like Israel was trying to provoke Iran to launch like a big attack while Trump was still in office. But they were sending a bomber. It seemed like every week the U.S. was deploying bombers in the region. Um, So all this pressure on Iran comes even after the U.S. admitted in its new nuclear posture review that they're not trying to build a nuclear weapon. But that has not stopped the threats. Robert Malley, who's President Biden's special envoy for Iran, supposed to be a diplomat. He recently said that the U.S. would use a military option as a last resort to stop Tehran from acquiring a nuclear bomb. Um, And then the next one here is from Jason Ditz. So the IAEA continues misleading allegations on Iran's uranium stockpile. So the International Atomic Energy Agency, it's the UN's nuclear watchdog, they released a quarterly report and it detailed Iran's stockpile of uranium. And they, as Jason says, they're overstating the seriousness of the enrichment of uranium that Iran has, much of it for civilian use. Or, uh, you know, none of it is, is for making a weapon because it's impossible to make a weapon with it. Their highest enriched uranium is at 60%. And that's well below 90%, although it is the highest that they've ever enriched uranium at. And they did it in response to an Israeli attack on the Natanz nuclear facility, I believe, um, back in April 2021. Um, But it increased only 6 kilograms from the the last quarter to 62.3. So that's nothing. Uh, They're barely growing it. And it's considered highly enriched. But again, it doesn't matter. They have this uranium stockpile but they can't do anything with it. You know, it's not like it can be used to make a nuclear bomb. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, but you know, the reason Jason wrote this up and the reason why we kind of run stories like this is just because, you know, if you read Israeli media, U S media, 
there's just all these big headlines about you know scaremongering about these numbers but when they really don't mean uh anything and as i said the u.s has concluded that they're not trying to make a bomb all right the next one i mean this is just insane uh the u.s drops a missile in the arctic in intentional provocation toward russia so U.S. Special Operations Forces, this was on Wednesday, they dropped a long-range missile out of a C-130 transport plane in the Arctic Circle in what a U.S. military officer described as an intentional provocation toward Russia. Now listen to what this guy said. This is the head of U.S. Special Operations Command in Europe. He said, quote, it puts this thing within range of Russia. We are intentionally trying to be provocative without being escalatory, end quote. So I don't know how you can be provocative without being escalatory, because if you provoke something, then isn't that an escalation? And of course, you know, the way the narrative works these days, even if they did provoke a response, they'd probably still call it unprovoked. Uh, but the missile was dropped off the coast of Norway in the into the Norwegian Sea near a space center in the country, and it marked the first test of a new program known as Rapid Dragon. And it's a palletized munition system that was created to use standard airdrop procedures using air-to-surface missiles. So these are missiles that are usually fired out of you know fighter jets and stuff um, that they're dropping out of a cargo plane. Um, and the idea here, I believe, if I understand this correctly, is that you know, a lot of the U.S.'s allies in Europe don't have like the the bombers that the U.S. has. But I guess if you get something like this going, you could just use a cargo plane uh, to drop uh, some pretty heavy duty firepower out, out of because it could carry some heavy stuff. And this missile drop, you know, it comes as tensions are soaring between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine. Just a totally needless provocation. And it coincided with drills that are being held in Poland and Romania that are part of a program known as uh, Atreus, or Atreus, Atreus, um, which was launched by U.S. European Command. And the idea of it, it explores new military options for the U.S. and its allies, you know, things that they could do differently. And the drills are preparations for potential future conflicts with Russia in Europe. Um and according to Stars and Stripes, the another drill that they have done under this program involves flying the HIMARS rocket systems, which are surface-to-surface -surface artillery, you know, precision artillery systems, flying them to different areas and offloading them for like for quick strike targeting, as they called it. So I guess um, it's just another way they could, you know, get missiles somewhere quick is is something that it's usually moved around on land. They could throw in a plane and fly it somewhere and start firing. Um, yeah, but just, I mean, intentional, <laughs> an intentional provocation without being escalatory. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But at least he's being honest that it's an intentional provocation. That's what this stuff is. Same thing with that uh, flying the bombers over to the Middle East. Uh, all right, the next one here, a UN rapporteur calls for the lifting of US sanctions harming Syrian civilians. So UN Special Rapporteur on Thursday, if I'm saying that word right, rapporteur, <laughs> I should have double checked. Uh, but she called for the removal of US and other Western sanctions on Syria, as they are having a devastating impact on the civilian population and preventing the country from rebuilding after 11 years of war. So this is Elena Duhan, she is a special rapporteur 
on unilateral coercive measures. She made the comments after a 12-day visit to Syria. There, she found that sanctions are harming civilians in many ways, including by causing a shortage of medicine and medical equipment. So she told the UN Security Council, quote, in the current dramatic and still deteriorating humanitarian situation, as 12 million Syrians grapple with food insecurity, I urge the immediate lifting of all unilateral sanctions that severely harm human rights and prevent any efforts for early recovery, rebuilding, and reconstruction, end quote. So she's saying that the sanctions are preventing reconstruction. Well, that's, uh, that's the point. Uh, U.S. officials have been very candid about the fact that the sanctions campaign against Syria is specifically designed to prevent the country from rebuilding, therefore punishing civilians. Secret Secretary of State Antony Blinken said last year that the U.S. policy, how this is how he put it, is to oppose the reconstruction of Syria. Um, he said until there is a political change in Damascus, but really what they're seeking is regime change. Um, and that's not going to happen. Uh, so these sanctions aren't going anywhere. Duhan said that the sanctions are having, a, uh, quote, catastrophic effects of unilateral sanctions across all walks of life in the country, end quote. She said that 90% of Syria's civilian population is living in poverty and have limited access to food, water, electricity, shelter, fuel, healthcare, and transportation. Now, on top of the sanctions campaign, the U.S. also maintains an occupation force of about 1,000 troops in eastern Syria and backs Kurdish groups in the region, allowing Washington to maintain control of about one-third of the country. The area that the U.S. occupies is where most of Syria's oil and wheat fields are located, so the occupation keeps that resource, those resources out of the hands of Damascus. And one of the big issues is the price of fuel is just so high because they're not able to purchase it from anywhere. And, you know, Israel bombed a convoy going from Iraq into Syria the other day, uh, and it was said to be a fuel convoy. Um, some reports said it was going to Lebanon, but it could have been just going to Syria to help people that are short of food. Fuel costs are so high, and then Israel goes and blows it up. Um, and speaking of which, you know, part of the U.S. policy in Syria is for the U.S. to tacitly, they back these Israeli airstrikes. Um, they don't endorse them outright, but, you know, they, they never stop them. And some of them they approve uh, that fly near U.S. bases. They have to say, yeah, you can go ahead. Uh, but despite the dire crisis, there's no sign that the U.S. is going to change this policy. The White House said at the end of October that it has no plans to lift the sanctions or end its military occupation of Syria. So it's just a really vicious policy what the U.S. is doing to Syria right now. And Duhan, uh, she recently said something similar about U.S. sanctions on Iran. So when you hear all these people um, acting like they care about Iranians, you know, the best thing that the U.S. could do would to be is to lift sanctions. Um, all right. So the next one, President Biden is going to meet with Xi Jinping next week at the G20 summit in Indonesia. So the White House announced this on Thursday. They're going to meet on the sidelines of the Group of 20 summit in Indonesia on, it's expected to be Monday that they're going to meet. And this is going to be their first in-person meeting uh, since President Biden came into office back in January 2021. And they're expected to discuss you know, multiple issues, including Ukraine and the simmering tensions between the U.S. and China over Taiwan. A senior U.S. official said that the meeting was about better understanding each other, 
but major differences are not expected to be resolved. The official saying pretty much, you know, we got to understand our priorities and intentions on certain issues, but there's not going to be any breakthroughs. Um, I guess it's just kind of a where they're at now with China is just managing the tensions, not so much trying to resolve them. So the meeting comes as U.S.-China relations are at their lowest point in decades. Uh, Biden has continued the trade war started by his predecessor, and he significantly ramped up the ec economic pressure on Beijing with sanctions and other measures targeting China's chips, chip industry. He just implemented some pretty serious sanctions with that. And he's also taking steps to increase support for Taiwan. And he has said several times now that he would intervene if China attacked the island, breaking from the decades-old policy of strategic ambiguity on the issue. Um, and as I have gone over so much, uh, China recently launched its largest ever military drills around Taiwan in response to Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi visiting the island and has kept up the military pressure, some of the military pressure, as Western officials continue to visit the island. She recently reaffirmed that China seeks peaceful reunification with Taiwan, what they call peaceful reunification, but will not rule out the use of force. And, you know, when you always look at these Chinese warnings, the one thing they say that, that that'll be a big difference maker is, you know, foreign interference. Um, and that's what the U.S. is pretty set on doing is uh, really stepping up support for Taiwan. Um, all right. So that's it for the news uh, for today. We have a lot of good viewpoints, as always. There's one from Ray McGovern about the um, about the meeting, the Biden-Xi meeting. That's coming up. That's very good. Um, there is one from Jonathan Grotefend about supporting our veterans by ending wars. John Weeks walking wide awake into World War III. This is at, uh, over at the Libertarian Institute. Uh, Ted Snyder, our regular columnist. Um, this is him writing at Responsible Statecraft about, you know, what, what does Russia, Russia's curse on withdrawal mean? And then we also have a great spotlight from Muhammad Sahimi uh, about the Iranian protests and stuff also at the Libertarian Institute. So go check all that stuff out. And then one thing I never mention is that, you know, if you're watching the video or if you're listening, I always just go over the stories that are in the top news section. They're mostly articles that I wrote. But if you scroll down, I mean, we got a ton of stuff posted. Um, and, you know, these are just articles from around the, the, the Internet. You know, it's not stuff that we... We write, um, but it's, you know, it's a really useful resource, especially for if you're a writer, a researcher. Um, we do, we sort stuff by country and, and region in the world. Uh, this is just news stories. Um, so you could always go check that out and scroll through, see what's going on around the world. Uh, but that's it for me for today. That's it for the week. Uh, it's Friday, so I'll be back on Monday um, with more news. Hopefully... Uh, you know, there's some more signs of diplomacy happening by then. Uh, but but that's it. Uh, thanks for listening. Again, subscribe, YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey. If you want the video, um, download the audio wherever you listen to the podcast, all that good stuff. I'll catch you after the weekend. Thank you.